0: Amen. What a blessing it is to be gathered together today, and as always to worship our Lord. But uh, what a sweet day it is as we uh, as we come to back to chapter nine of Hebrews. I know we've been out of Hebrews for a few weeks. Uh, we've been speaking about the importance of this letter, and it's a very important letter of the New Testament because it it tells us the importance of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and all the things that were happening there to point forward to what Christ would come. And do and so we mentioned before that this entire letter points to the greatness of Christ, how he is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament shadows. But we've mentioned several times that particularly this section of Hebrews is the heart of the letter. And uh, depending on how you place Hebrews in terms of importance in the Scriptures, may be the very heart of the Bible. Certainly, it's the heart of biblical theology that Christ came to be the perfect High Priest, and that that many had to have a covenant or law attached to his priesthood. He had to have a sacrifice to offer, and he had to have or be the high priest to administer that offering in the heavenly places. And so again, all this is saying everything you learned in the Old Testament is not thrown away. It is the model, right? It is the type that points to the antitype in in this new covenant understanding of what Christ has accomplished. So all this is important. All of it's been pointed to over the last few chapters that the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood was not the end, right? It wasn't the end. It was pointing forward to something greater. It was for a time, an earthly, if you will, temporal priesthood that pointed to a greater eternal priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood, which was, if you will, kind of mysterious in the Old Testament and maybe even a little mysterious in the New Testament. But it's revealed more, obviously, in the New Testament than in the Old. But it's pointing out that this is the true eternal priesthood, that Christ uh, comes as a priest in the line, if you will, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then also we saw the promise of a new covenant. That's not new to us. There was an old covenant, and there was always the promise of a new covenant that would come. And we see that in places like Jeremiah chapter 31. It was recognized, there will be a new covenant. But what Hebrews is arguing for is really the newness of the new covenant, that it is a new covenant. And in fact, as Jeremiah said, unlike the former one, right? It's unlike in several regards, and we've looked at that over time. But the necessity of a new covenant is seen in the author of Hebrews' writings. How? Because Christ could not minister under the old covenant. He wasn't a Levite. He could not enter the holiest place and offer the sacrifices there. If He had done so, it would have been in violation of the law. And Christ was obviously not going to violate the law, because if He did so, He would be no longer spotless and therefore not able to offer the atonement we need. And so, it just is logical here, the author says, if there was going to be a change in priesthood, there must also be a change in law or covenant. They must go together. So closely is the priesthood and the law connected that to have a new one, you must have a new other. And so that's what he's been arguing. So we see all this coming together and leading up to even saying even the tabernacle itself as fixed as Israel was upon the tabernacle and later the temple saying this is the place where God dwells amongst us the author of Hebrews says "Mm, you didn't read the scriptures closely enough. For what did God tell Moses? Make the tabernacle according to the pattern that I showed you upon this mountain meaning And that word, by the way, tupos or pattern that's given to us in the text means after the the blueprint, the original that I showed you. In other words, what he's saying is God gave him the directions for building a model on earth of what he showed him upon the mountain. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't leave us to interpret what that is. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says there is a true heavenly sanctuary of which the earthly sanctuary resembled or was a model But it was never to be the end. You see, if you thought that the Levitical priesthood and the Old Covenant was the last thing, the eschatological covenant, then you might also think then the tabernacle and temple were the eschatological sanctuary of the Lord. But he says, no. It was always worded in such a way as to make you realize that there was something greater. And that greater thing is the sanctuary in heaven. And so, again, we have to be very careful how we interpret these chapters of Hebrews because a lot of people want to bring figurative language and say, well, all this is figurative, the heavenly sanctuary is figurative, the taking of the sacrificial blood into the holiest place, and the heavenly sanctuary is figurative. But actually, that's exactly the opposite of what the author is arguing. He's arguing that the earthly things were the figurative aspect, that they pointed to the greater nature of what Christ would do. And so we need to understand that. And so all of it pointing forward and preparing us for the coming of the true high priest, the great high priest, the perfect high priest, the messianic high priest, even Jesus Christ. Now we saw last time we were here three or four weeks ago that even Yom Kippur and all the sacrifices of the the temple and tabernacle were pointing forward to what Jesus would do. He makes this point, Yom Kippur pointed forward to Jesus And the reason we know that is because the sacrifices were never really enough. They weren't sufficient. They would have to be done every year, year upon year. And even then, they didn't do certain things. He says they were not able to cleanse the conscience. They gave an external cleansing. This is difficult to speak about for us. But there was a sense in which by these sacrifices, the people of Israel could remain in the land and obedient to God, but it could not clear the conscience. And he even makes the point that it did not atone for intentional sin, but sins done in ignorance. So there were a lot, lot of aspects of that Old Testament system in which you'd say, I'm in trouble, right? Because here's the thing, I have intentionally sinned before. right? I knew something was wrong and I did it anyway. No matter how many years ago it was, I have done that. And according to the law, the Old Testament system doesn't atone for such things. It doesn't cleanse for such things. And it cannot cleanse internally the conscience. And so the scriptures are telling us, the author of Hebrew is telling us here that the reason we needed something beyond that system was it was never enough. God never intended it to be the eschatological or last system. That it was pointing forward to something greater than itself. It was pointing forward to Christ, which Paul argues the entire Old Testament does. The end of the law is Christ Jesus. It all points to Him. It is that pedagogos, the the schoolmaster or the tutor that takes us by the hand and leads us to Jesus. These are texts, I hope, that are familiar to you because they're all saying the same thing. And so we see all of this, and we come here to realize that what the author of Hebrews is saying is that entirely priestly system, that entire priestly system of the Old Testament was to point you to Jesus. How? You would say, I've done all the things I'm called to do, And it's still not sufficient. I've offered the yearly sacrifices. I've offered the sin sin offerings. I've done all the things that I'm called to do, and yet I've deliberately sinned. Uh, My conscience is not cleaned. I need more. I never feel completely right with God through this system. And guess what? You were never intended to. It cannot do that. That's why we say that all that have ever been saved have been saved by faith alone. Not in those sacrifices, but what in those sacrifices pointed to, which was the atonement that Christ would offer. That's why Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Because Abraham didn't think the slaughter of a bull or of a goat could take care of his issues, but he knew that God himself would provide the sacrifice. And that's what the entire Old Testament was pointing to. If we don't realize that, we've misunderstood it. And that's what Hebrews is telling us. Many of us have misunderstood what we've read, and we need to be careful and read it rightly. So as we come back to the Word today, we want to see what he continues to say. Brother Ben read it a moment ago, but I want us to listen to it again. And I'm going to be dealing with just a little bit with verse 15, so I'm going to add verse 15 in. He says this, "...and for this reason he," meaning Jesus, "...is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant." That those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, my friends, there's some verses here we're familiar with. That last verse is one we quote often, right? To speak of the importance of blood uh, in both the Old Testament understanding and also the New Testament understanding. We could just say the understanding of biblical theology when it comes to salvation is based on blood. We need to recognize that, not hide from it, not uh, become scared of saying that. That's the truth, um, we, I think I read uh, recently one theologian say the history of the modern church is trying to run from that truth, right? Of saying, well, we don't need blood and we don't need the death of Christ. Let's just make that that Christ came and gave a faithful example, but he didn't really need to die. No, the Bible says he needed to die and he came for that purpose. He came for that purpose. And we see in Hebrews the importance of blood. So as we look at this text today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, mediation and redemption. Second of all, covenant and testament. And third, blood and forgiveness. So beginning first with uh, the idea of mediation and redemption, I want us to turn back, if you will, to see that this is not a new doctrine. We know that in the Bible. We've been arguing it all the way through. uh, But it's not a new argument in Hebrews either. It's been all the way through Hebrews, the importance of atonement, and particularly the atonement that Christ offers, has been argued throughout this letter. From the very beginning, what does it say? When he had by himself purged our sins, that's right in the prologue to this letter, meaning, from the very beginning, we see the importance of what Christ has accomplished. The Yom Kippur imagery that we've been talking about is, again pointing to what Christ did by his greater sacrifice. Go back to the end of, the, of or excuse me, the end of what we looked at a few weeks ago, and you'll see that, because it says, if, if one thing was accomplished with the blood of bulls and goats, which was never sufficient, how much more, right? can the blood of Christ accomplish. So that's the basic theme or argument, if you will, of this section of Hebrews. So we see again and again that it's important to recognize atonement in this letter. Now, as you look at that, you'll see that in verse 13. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer. So this is mixing the imagery of the the heifer ceremony and also uh, Yom Kippur. The uh, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience? And that has the feel of even your conscience. This is something the old covenant sacrifices could not do. How much more then will it cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, I come back to this section because it flows into what we're looking at today but also because we really didn't get to look at the end of 15 last time, and I don't want to leave any part unaddressed. It says, and for this reason, because he has a greater sacrifice, he is the mediator of a greater covenant. What does it mean to mediate? It means to be between two parties, right? That's what a mediator is. If you get into some kind of issue at at work, they may bring in a mediator. If you get into some legal dispute, they may bring in a mediator, right? These things happen. Someone who sits between two parties and tries to work out a solution to whatever the problem is. Well, the Bible tells us that God's relationship to us is mediated. In the Old Covenant, there was mediation. This goes to the argument of the first two chapters of Hebrews. Because what does the author of Hebrews tell us about that Old Covenant, how it was mediated? He says it was double mediated. It was mediated on the heavenly side by angels and on the earthly side by Moses. Now, we don't get all those details very easily in uh, in the Torah, but, but they're there. And he tells us very clearly in the New Testament, this is how it happened. There was God and there was man. And in between God and man, there was two mediators, two mediators. Now, why does the author of Hebrews think this is an important detail? Because the new covenant is not double mediated. It is single mediated. And he says, if it's a greater covenant and it only needs one mediator, that shows the exceeding greatness of Christ as a mediator. We live in an age where people say, there are certain doctrines we don't need anymore. We talk about this often. They say things like the virgin birth of Christ, the incarnation, we don't need these things, the hypostatic union, however you want to word that, that Christ is fully God and fully man. If they believe that, they have not understood the text of Scripture And they have not understood the argument of Hebrews. Because the author of Hebrews says the only reason this covenant can be single-mediated is because we have the perfect mediator. There no longer is a need for two parties to mediate because now in one person you have God and man perfectly brought together. And therefore He is uniquely, only He is suited to be the mediator between God and man because He is both fully God and fully man Perfectly God and perfectly man. And so we see here this argument from Hebrews that mediation is important and Christ is, in fact, the mediator. And so as we see that, He is the mediator of the new covenant. Now how did He do that? We come to the point we're going to be looking at today, by means of death. He could not do this except by His death. And people say, well, why is that? Why couldn't He just do it in some other way? Well, the... Author of Romans, Paul, answers this in his own way. He says the gospel is the explanation of how God can be both just and the justifier of those who come to him in faith. What does he mean? How can God pardon sinners and remain just himself, remain holy himself? I've asked you in times past to think about this. If a judge just says, you know, I hate sending people to prison, I'm just going to allow anybody that comes to my court to skate right out the other side. I'll declare them in good standing with the law. Is that a good judge or an unrighteous judge? Unrighteous judge. So how does God do what would seem to be the equivalent of that, take all of us as sinners and declare us unrighteous without Himself being unjust? And Paul says in Romans, the answer is the gospel. Because the gospel is the explanation of how He does it. That Christ bore our sins. He took the curse that was due us. He bore them on His account so that they weren't just overlooked. They were fully paid for, paid in full. The author of Hebrews says in a slightly different way that the way that he did it was through this method, through the way of death. He's saying the same thing, that Christ did this. He became the mediator of this covenant by his own death, by taking our sins upon himself for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. That's an interesting wording, isn't it? He doesn't just say, for sin, he says, for transgressions under the first covenant. Why does he say that? I think the reason is this. He's making the point, the old covenant and its law had a purpose. And that purpose was to show you you're a sinner. It identified sin. It made you recognize the holiness and the righteousness of God and that you don't measure up. That no man in his own righteous standing can stand before God because no man has righteous standing before God. We've said many times, I think it was J. Vernon McGee who used to say, the law does three things. It shows you God's perfect holiness, your sinfulness, and your need of a redeemer. That's what it shows you. And I think the author of Hebrews is just saying that in a different way. He's saying that what Christ did was redeemed us from all the things the old covenant law pointed its finger at us for. Because all of us recognize that we've all fallen short of God's glory and we can point to exactly where in the law we've done it. Maybe even today, but certainly at some time past, we can walk through even just those Ten Commandments and find violated that one, violated that one, violated that one, violated that one. And even the ones that we might say we haven't violated, like I don't think I've ever murdered anybody, but then what does Jesus say? If you've had hatred in your heart for a brother, you've murdered in your heart. If you've had lust for a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's a standard none of us can stand against. That's the point. It teaches us this. All of us fall short of God's glory. All of us are in need of a Redeemer, someone who would reconcile us to this holy and righteous God. But the author of Hebrews goes even beyond that to say not only was he offering redemption, <clears throat> but look at this. But he also says it's for those who were, who were called. So again, this idea of these people that God has called, And beyond this, look at this, that they may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, if we want to twist this wording around just slightly, it's saying the same thing originally. You could also say to receive the inheritance of the eternal promise. There's an inheritance we receive in Christ, there's something we get in this relationship with Christ. Now, we could turn to Romans chapter 8 and see that in Christ, All things are ours. That we are inheritors in Christ of what He has, and He has everything. Joint heirs with Christ. And this is the author of Hebrews saying that this same thing is is seen here, that we receive a promise of an inheritance in Christ. That means that Christ didn't just come and die some fictional or pointless death. He came to accomplish something, to redeem a people, He came to reconcile us to our Father and that we might receive in Him an inheritance. And it's an eternal inheritance. It's not an inheritance that's passing away. I'm reminded we were looking at 1 Corinthians in our Sunday school class and Paul, in speaking of his own sacrifices and stuff that he's made, as a model for the church at Corinth, he says this. You've seen the athletes down at the track, how they run, how they train, how they're moderate in all things. I give the example often of, you know, if you're going to be an Olympic athlete at the highest level, you're not eating at Olive Garden every night, are you? You're not stuffing yourself a fettuccine Alfredo because you realize that's not conducive to the goals that you've set. You recognize that if I'm going to be an elite athlete, I have to be very careful about everything I eat, everything I do. And so the point here is this. He says, though, about such people that they run for a prize, a prize that passes away, a a laurel wreath they put upon their head that would turn brown and fall apart. He says, but you run after an eternal crown. You see, always the scriptures say what we receive is eternal. It doesn't have an end. It's eschatological. It goes on and on and on. And so, my friends, we need to recognize here this importance that this is an inheritance that's not like things we receive on earth that are here today and gone tomorrow, but something that is lasting, truly lasting, that Christ died to make this possible. Now that brings us right to our second point today, because as we go into today's text, we see that the author does something pretty interesting. He begins to talk about an inheritance. He picks that up from the verse we looked at last week and and today, verse 15, and runs into 16 to say something very important, and it's based on a word in the Greek diatheke, which is the word for covenant. Whenever you see covenant in the New Testament, it's that word, diatheke. And, and, but what's interesting about that word is it has more than one meaning. It basically, at its heart, means a legal agreement. So you can see why covenant fits, right? Because a covenant is an agreement God makes with man that generally carries some rules, stipulations, blessings, cursings, etc., But covenants are not only made between God and man. Man and man can make covenants. There are covenants in this world. There are covenants in Scripture. But that word also means testament. In the Greek, it can mean covenant or testament. And it's interesting because the author of Hebrews switches the meaning here clearly from covenant to testament. Now, we're familiar with the word testament. We have in our Bibles an Old Testament and a New Testament. But what is a testament? A testament is a will. This is what Oxford's Dictionary says. It's a will, particularly dealing with the distribution of materials. So in other words, you make a will, you decide how it is your goods are going to be distributed after you're gone, and that is exactly what a testament is. We say, my last will and testament, right? And so again, we know this this word, and the author switches this word because he's doing something very important. He's saying there are promises that God has made uh, to us. Now, for a moment, we need to differentiate between these two meanings of diatheke. Because we think about covenant and testament. It's very closely related, but there are some important differences. A covenant does not always involve death. Sometimes we say that flippantly. We'll just say, well, you know, a covenant involves death. It often does, but it doesn't always How about the fact that David and Jonathan made a covenant together? There's nowhere in the text that anything died, right, in the making of that covenant. And what about what we looked at a couple of months ago at kind of a covenantal structure of the Bible? You'd remember there was a covenant made between God and Adam, the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. And yet nothing died in the making of that covenant. Why? This was before death even entered the world. Sin had not entered yet. There is no death there. It would violate the basic theology of Scripture for there to have been death. So covenants are agreements that sometimes do revolve around death. Why doesn't the one with Adam, for instance, require death? Because Adam had not sinned. There's no need of reconciliation to God. There are parties that are coming together to make an agreement in the same way, if you will, Jonathan and David do. Or maybe two neighbors do where they say, Hey, listen, let's just, our boundary we've been disputing it, let's just come together and set a boundary that's fair for both of us. And we'll just covenant together on that. Well, you don't probably have to sacrifice any animals to make that happen if you both agree to it. So again, we need to recognize that, but there is a difference here because testament always involves death. The entire purpose of a testament is looking forward and seeing death. Why does any person create a testament? It's always with the specter of death, is it not? And I don't mean by that an, an, an upcoming close death. But someone in their 30s may put together a will or a testament because they're concerned of what may happen with their children if something happens to them, right? They don't expect to die soon. They realize none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. But there's always that recognition that I would like to have something written out of what will happen to my, my stuff, who will get what, so always a testament is born out of the specter of death. So diathike bo- has both these meanings. It's interesting as Arthur author goes here he makes this very point for us. For where there is a testament there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. What does he mean? Maybe not in the creation of a testament but in the execution of a testament there has been a death. If there is a distribution of your uncle's property or your grandparents' property to you that came out of their testament, it happens when they've died. We all know that, don't we? Inheritances come that way. This is not a surprise to us. And so the author is speaking of a real-world illustration to help us understand a little better what he's saying. And he makes this point in verse 17, For a testament is in force after men are dead. Now, that document is still signed, Sealed, it exists, it's in someone's holding until that time. But I can't go up and say, uh, I demand my grandfather's car because I believe he left it to me in his will, and I would like to have it now. That's not how it works. We've spoken about the prodigal son and uh, how Jewish culture would look at that son coming and saying, Give me what's mine now because it wasn't his. Upon the death of his father it might become his, according to the process of the testament, but not until. So the author of Hebrews is saying, there must be the death of the tessitor for the testament to be in force. Why did Christ have to die? Because all the promises of inheritance that we were to receive can only happen upon his death. Now theologically we understand that. That's everything that's been argued in Hebrews. The need for Christ to die. The need for His blood to be shed. We've been talking about that for some time. But to recognize that none of it could come into effect until He died, the author says, look at the basic understanding of a testament. You understand this. This is how it works in the real world. It's a principle that is binding and true. It must be that the testator must die. And he says this again. So he says, isn't this true of the Old Testament? Now, again, it's easy for us to see the Old Covenant and Testament in a united term, but he's using here that word here for the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Wasn't it true of it? Death was required to make it happen. We can read exactly how that happened as Moses read it. In fact, our author recaps it here. As the Word of God was read, the law of God was read, and animals were slaughtered, and that blood was applied to cleanse And the people of Israel fell under the command of God, even willingly. Even willingly, Arthur says, blood was required. It could not happen outside of death. The problem, though, when you think theologically is this. How could the blood that was shed on that covenant ever be sufficient? It wasn't the blood of Jesus. It was the blood of imperfect animals. And we just said, if you're asking that question, you're getting to the heart of the entire theology of Hebrews. It wasn't sufficient. Just as the covenant that it was applied to wasn't sufficient, Paul makes this point in Second Corinthians. It was never sufficient. It was passing away. But it led to something that does not pass away. It led to something that is perfect and sufficient and does all that we need. And that is because it's a testament and its testator is Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. So all that is recapped for us. But it brings us to an important point that we need to uh, finish up with here, which is blood and forgiveness. Blood and forgiveness. The Bible makes this point abundantly clear. Blood is required. Blood is important. Right? Blood is shown from the very beginning of Scripture to have life in it. We know this. If you drain blood out of a human body, it will not live. Right? It's just a basic biological fact. In the blood is life. And from the very beginning, God tells us there's something special about blood, something unique about blood. When blood fell upon the earth, it said that its blood cried out unto God. That's unique, isn't it? It's strange to even think that way, that blood would be uh, so powerful, so unique. And yet the Bible doesn't hide from that. All along, it points to blood and blood and blood. In fact, as you read the Old Testament, Maybe sometimes we're shocked at the amount of blood we see in sacrifice and ritual and ordinance. All these things, blood, blood, blood. I've mentioned this quote many times, but it was helpful to me years ago. Uh, Arthur Pink wrote, as you read the Old Covenant and you see the blood, are you disturbed by it? He said, good, it was intended that you should be. Because it's there to show us the price of our iniquity, the price of sin that there must be an atonement, and that atonement is done through the shedding of blood. In fact, our author author here today says the same thing, doesn't he? After describing how that blood was uh, sprinkled upon the Old Covenant as the covenant was put into force, the Testament was put into force, he says this, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Now, why does he say almost all things? Because we could argue a biblical principle that actually all things ultimately, right, are cleansed or purified or atoned by blood. But he says almost all things. So I wonder what he's thinking of here. I think what he's thinking of is in the old covenant under the law, if you were poor, you could make a grain offering. You didn't actually offer something of blood. But this wasn't the pattern, was it? This was the exception. This was a mercy offered to people that could not afford an animal to offer. And so it's the exception. I think he's making room for that exception here. But we would make the point that even that really is an exception with force because of this. All those offerings of bulls and goats and heifers and grain and doves and all those offerings, none of them were of themselves, but all pointed to the perfect offering of Christ. It's through Christ and His sacrifice that true atonement comes. And so we recognize here that as he's saying this, he's making exception for that, but he's recognizing that blood is what the Scriptures say is necessary to atone for sin. And then look how he says it here at the end. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no salvation. There is no expiation. There is no whatever term you want to use There is not the putting away of our sin without the shedding of blood. Why did Christ have to die? Right there is your answer. Right there is your answer. It also explains to you why as you think about that Old Testament system, it should be shocking because it should say to all those present, look at the price of sin. Look at the means that it requires for atonement. I want you to hear what Spurgeon wrote on this. I thought it was really interesting. He says this, speaking of imagining the outer courts of the temple, I suppose the outer court of the Jewish temple was something worse than an ordinary slaughterhouse. If you will read the list of the multitudes of beasts that were sometimes slain there in a single day, you will see that the priests must have stood in gore and have presented a crimson appearance, their snow-white garments all splashed over with blood as they stood there offering sacrifice from morning till night. Every man who went up to the tabernacle or to the temple must have stood aside for a moment and said, What a place this is for the worship of God. Everywhere I see signs of slaughter. I don't know if we often think about that, what it would have been like to go to temple. If you didn't live in in Jerusalem, you would go up on those festivals that required all men of Jerusalem to go up. Oftentimes they would take their families with them. Can you imagine to, to finally get to go into the temple, this place that you long to see, the place that symbolizes God's presence amongst his people. And everywhere is bloodshed. Bloodshed. And we say, well, what is the purpose of that? The purpose of that is to point forward to what Christ had to do and our need of him to do it. That unless he did it, we would die in our sins as a people without hope. That's the message of Scripture. That is the message of Hebrews. That there is a great and glorious inheritance for the people of God. But you receive it through what Christ did and what He did alone. And no other way. The Old Testament was not sufficient. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. Christ alone, the spotless Lamb of God, could do it. And praise God, He did do it. He went to Calvary's cross and gave His life as an atonement for us. That all those who put their faith in Him can have the eternal inheritance that He promised His people. My friends, as you think about this text today, it really does beg the question, are you a part of that inheritance? Is your faith in Christ? Do you believe that He is who He said He is and that He accomplished what He said He accomplished? Do you have faith in Christ? Because it's only in Christ that we have hope.